This episode of Dear Asian Americans is brought to you by the Quarter Pounder with Cheese from McDonald's. It's QPC time. Did your mouth just water? The QPC is the burger that breaks the norms of etiquette, the burger that napkins were made for, the burger that's saucy, drippy, oozing with flavor, always cooked when you order. So the next time you want a mouth-watering burger, order the QPC from McDonald's. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans. So excited to have you here uh, on 4th of July weekend as we kick off uh, unofficially the second half of the year. It's July 1st, um, although I think technically, uh, because of February being a short month, the middle of the year is uh, the second or the third. Really excited to commemorate this uh, midpoint in the year. Um, It's been a year of, of both celebratory moments and of great concern. 2022 has also been a year where I think most of us have tried at some point to go back to life as normal and enjoying the things that we have missed so much in the past two years, in-person events, uh, school in person, work in person, travel and the like. And uh, certainly my family isn't exempt from that. As you listen to this, we're on a family trip in Washington, D.C., seeing both sides of the family and celebrating the 4th of July holiday in Washington, D.C., you know, the, the last couple of months have been particularly challenging for many in the community, and there have been events like the Dallas shooting and the Laguna Woods shooting that have impacted our community directly, but other events uh, have impacted us very, very broadly. Two uh, that have really struck me quite significantly is the, the shooting of the children um, at the school in Uvalde, Texas, and the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade from the Supreme Court. I wanted to share that because this interview that we have upcoming with our guest, uh, Sujin Pak, was uh, uh, recorded just after uh, the week of the Texas shooting. And so um, hopefully that gives you a little bit of context to the tone of our conversation and sort of where our head and our hearts were at as we uh, navigated a tough week together, both of us being parents of a similar generation. Nonetheless, uh, I'm so excited to share uh, this conversation with Sujin, who I only knew through TV, like so many of you and so many in our generation, or at least my generation, of perhaps seeing a Korean woman, Korean girl, uh, similar age on TV, on MTV nonetheless, and and seeing how cool it was and then wondering what uh, could be possible for us. And and even before we probably even had the words to talk about what representation and proper representation meant, but just thinking, man, that is so cool that one of us is on TV. And so... Really, really grateful uh, to her team over at Add to Cart uh, for connecting us and for allowing this conversation to happen. Um, yeah, really excited to share this with you. And I hope that you appreciate sort of the, again, the, the timing of the time that we had this conversation. Thanks again for tuning in. And uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Sujin Pak. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Years of the Americas. I am so, so, so excited for this conversation for a whole slew of reasons. Primary being one of them that my wife is actually more excited for this interview than I am, and I am pretty damn excited. So that goes to show you how uh, excited Kyungwa is. Um, we grew up in an era. I did, and if you listen to the show, I don't. I don't hide my age. I'm 39. You know, we grew up in an era where we watched what we were told to watch. Right? We did not get to choose what we watched and what was cool and what was popular, what was shown in front of us. And so our guest today was the face of what was cool for so long and something. And even myself and many of my peers looked up to and said, wow, that's possible now, right? And, and so mm. I, I am so excited. And, and she has taken all her learnings, all her stories, and 
in our in our co new life stages as parents have decided to go full in on Asian American storytelling. Welcome to the show, Sujin Pak. Hi, Sujin. Hi. So so good to finally see your face. I mean, here you know you know I the voices I, I like everything everything on the gram. Poss- you know, the yeah, you know, you know, listening to people over podcasts and seeing people's pretty Instagram versions of their lives, and then finally like. <laughs> Even through yeah. you know small uh, yeah. cameras or whatever, it's kind of cool. And so, yeah. how how are you? It, it's been you know we're at the end of May. If if you're listening, uh, we're recording right at the end of May, just before Memorial Day weekend. It's been a tough. I don't even want to say a week, a month. Um, it's exhausting. How yeah. how are you and your family handling all the news that's been nonstop almost? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I. I think everybody's probably vacillating between gorging on the news and then hiding, you know, under whatever cover uh, that that you cover, you know, you hide under when you want to sort of stop, you know, because I mean, you you have to stop at some point. So I gorged, you know, yesterday and the day before, and today it's Friday. I want to be with my kids this weekend. I was thinking last night. I mean, I haven't slept all week, um, which isn't unusual, but like, you know, I don't think a lot of us are sleeping very well um, this particular week. But, you know, I was thinking last night, I was like, my kids, this is the last week of school coming up. They have four more days. And I thought, should I just pull them out? Because it's only four days. The last day is a half day. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, what are they really doing? They're just kind of cleaning up and wrapping up. Do they need to be in that environment? Do I need to, you know, go there when they're not here? I can walk to the school. We're very close, you know. And so that's what I thought last night. And I don't I, think I, you're alone. Yeah. I mean, I mean, homeschooling is a term that I've seen a lot on sort of our, our probably overlapping friend circles of community members saying, what yeah. do we do? We've also... Not seriously, but more seriously than before, like entertain the idea of like moving, right? Like, yeah. where do you go where at least but that's where? not a worry? I don't know. We're, we're foreigners here. We're foreigners back in Korea. <laughs> like, you know, but it's, it's, it's crossed my mind because, you know, the thought is like, well, at least it won't be that, right? Like, yeah, you know, and, and so. <laughs> oh, you know, yeah, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're mean out of the country. You know what, Jerry? I, this is crazy because I, Everybody must be having, or a lot of people must be having these conversations. Last night, my husband and I, we had never talked about leaving the country. And both, he said, for the, I've never heard him say this. He was like, when our parents pass, let's move to Switzerland. I was like, Switzerland? Where is that? Like, out of left field. He was like, I don't know. I'm just picking some place I have not heard in the news in a while. Um and, you know, and we just kind of laughed about it of like, pick any I mean, other place. Go, right. We can go to Australia. We can go to the UK. We can go to Japan or Korea, you know. Agreed. Um, I, yeah. I don't want to, you know, it doesn't bring me any joy to start on a sour note or, or a not yeah. super happy note. But, you know, I'd be remiss if we didn't address sort of the, the context yes. of which we were talking because it's the reality. And, and so, which I, I genuinely believe and we, we do the work of sharing our stories that it is my absolute genuine belief. And the reason that I do what I do that sharing our stories collectively and personally will help eventually 
lessen some of these horrible events because it's through the humanization of our relationships and sharing our stories that I think Mm -hmm. builds empathy and lessens the hate. It's, It's so unfortunate that we develop hateful feelings towards people we don't even know people mm-hmm. who we are not friends with because of things that our parents told us, things that society told us, things that media tells us. And so um, I am really excited for this conversation because you have an experience in being all these things. You're a storyteller. You have your own platform. You're a parent. You've been on MTV for a decade. You wrote a book. You're doing a lot. And so I, mm-hmm. I am so excited to dig in and, and learn all about uh, Sujin and, and the uh, the legacy and the work that you're doing. But let's roll back the clock a little bit. Um, yeah. Tell us about the early years of Sujin's life. How did you, how did the Pack family move to America? <laughs> when, where did you go? And how did that actually inform sort of your early reflection of your identity? Yeah. Well, we moved here in 1980. So we were in the wave of, I think, folks that in, at least in the Korean community, um, and I would say generally in the Asian community, but um, I'll just speak for our community. Uh, that came earlier, I think, were much more of the college-educated intellectual. Like they came under a different sort of um, maybe uh, you know goal or an idea of what it was. And I think in 1980, when we moved here, it was truly for the American dream. Right, the economy in Korea was uh, not great. Um, as you know, it's very expensive to get a very good education in uh, Korea, at least it was then. And so my parents really didn't feel like coming from nothing that they could give us the best uh, chance. And so they moved here. My aunt was already here. She had moved here. She went to college here. She was in Honolulu. And so we started off in Honolulu and then we ended up in the Bay Area in California. And that's where I grew up from the age five till I moved to New York and never went back. NorCal is, what what part of NorCal? I guess that depends. Well, yes, it depends. Okay, so I grew up in Union City, which is East Bay. Mm -hmm. It's the halfway point between San Jose and Oakland. My parents had had restaurants, uh, not multiple restaurants at the same time, but always had a restaurant of some sort in Oakland for business. And so I'm an East Bay kid. Um, I'm not a San Francisco kid. I'm not a Palo Alto kid. Uh, I'm not a <laughs> Walnut Creek kid. If you if you know there's a lot of stereotypes being thrown around. So if you if you're from NorCal <laughs> or at least familiar with the areas, you know uh, what I mean. What she's trying to say, is she did not grow up as much privilege as sometimes no. some of our friends in those I, cities that are mentioned. That's right. I mean, I, Fremont, you know, next door was a pretty sweet sweet uh, town. Union City, not so much. But yeah, that's where that's where we grew up. And that's where, you know, my parents lived up until just about a year ago. So I want to, you know, not to simplify, but you've had the childhood life, you had your New York chapter, and now you have sort of this, you know, post MTV storytelling, owning our own narrative chapter. What were some of the things earlier in your life that either encourage you to or gave you the belief that you could pursue I mean, even being a news correspondent on MTV is a form of storytelling. You're, you know, yeah. you get to use your voice for something. Were there pivotal moments? Was was there encouragement or otherwise from your parents to pursue something that was obviously uniquely very different than what most of our mm. parents encourage us to do? Yeah. And I don't want to bundle our parents together. And I think I, I do want to be mindful too that you know when you said that that wave of Korean immigration, 
it's not the career that most people know now. It's completely mm-hmm. different. Yeah. And there's a reason why so many left, not just to America, but to South America and to Canada and to other places. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really to, you know, to find better economic opportunity because it was just so challenging there. And, and so uh, how did they view what you wanted to make of their sacrifice or their decision to come here? I mean, I, I up until probably I was I was still at MTV when my mom was telling me, you know, Dr. Jung's daughter, she started off in pharmacy school or, you know, Sam Kang, you know, wanted to be an optometrist, but now he's a lawyer. You know, you can still go to law school like there's, you know, it's not too late. Um is this and the so, yeah 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 it's it's always the i mean that's what happened to me too <laughs> they they were slightly ecstatic after i decided to go to business school after 10 years of what they thought was not a respectable career and then now i do this and they're probably no, still no. just as confused. <laughs> so confused um i mean but like i mean so you but you stayed i guess before moving to new york you you went to yeah. cal right and so you stayed yeah. in the area like what did you study what did you want to do you know cal's obviously a very diverse place where there's a lot of people that look mm-hmm. like us and you know the, the climate is a little bit more self-expression friendly i guess yeah. to, to find a community that's not so buttoned up were, were there things that like helped you change your mind of what you wanted to do so growing up in a community where you know most everyone looks like you i think in some ways uh i came to my sort of understanding of asian american identity very late because you didn't have to figure out your identity everybody nobody was questioning who you were everybody brought weird food you know there was no there was you know in some ways it's that right in the bay area so uh, there's a real privilege to that to grow up with considering other versions of yourself but the asian american identity wasn't something that i necessarily rubbed up against and like you said even at cal you know it, it just for me i i didn't feel the need to seek out an Asian community. I didn't feel the need to express my that part of my identity. It just was, and it was very accepted. Now, I started um, reporting in television when I was 16 in high school. And, um, you know, the, so the seed was planted of like, interesting, like, this is interesting. I don't know where this will go. I never thought I would have a career on television, but I thought this, this could lead to something. This is an opportunity that feels really rare and special. So I would say, knowing what I know now, I think I spent most of those years trying to get as close to whiteness as possible. Because for me, to have a career in front of the camera, you had to really look like our local anchor, who was Cheryl Jennings in the, you know, in at, at KGO TV, the ABC affiliate there. You know, she was blonde, blue-eyed, you know, just uh, very well put together and very to me, presentable in terms of what a news anchor should look like. So it's not that I rejected the my Asian American identity. It just wasn't something that was important. And I think that's a very, it's not a unique experience. And so for context, like we moved from Korea to Fullerton when I was eight. And so like when you live in Fullerton, you don't need to learn English, right? Like <laughs> um, even in 1992, the school sent home letters in Korean, right? And so like, our, our collective That's parents crazy. of Fullerton that were in the early 90s, they have no incentive to learn Korean. And I got That's by right. because I wouldn't understand something. I'd ask my cousin or my friends, like, hey, what do they say, right, in, in my native tongue? And so 
the representation piece is really fascinating to me too because I like to think that I didn't have, but when you're in Korea, like all the media that we consumed, and you know, for a lot of the Korean immigrants who grew up in the '90s, like we watch Korean videos all day, right? Like, and so seeing myself on TV happened. We just never made the connection that on American TV that we needed to be there too because we yeah. got plenty of like our own content through the things that we chose to watch. And then when we yeah. turned on the TV for like, you know, uh, what is it, TGIF or whatever on ABC, it just made total sense that all we saw were white people. And yeah. like, we almost didn't like care that we didn't see each other because it, we still in a way like othered ourselves out of that expectation of wanting to be seen. And so I, I think it's, you know, I, I know when we talked to a lot of friends who grew up, you know, in, in the middle of the country where they're the only, like the other way isn't super Different. healthy either. Because yeah. then like, how do you find that? And in, in a way, especially in Fullerton, I went to high school in New York City where like, the and this Asian American identity for all of us is relatively new. Um, mm-hmm. We were just primarily Korean, and so like yeah. you know, like seeing a Chinese person or a Japanese person, or an Indian person on TV didn't do it for us because they weren't us. And so yeah. I, I think it's fascinating to hear you say that because we just didn't know what we were missing because we yeah. were getting adequate representation in some way, shape, or form, but that wasn't the contextually relevant ones that we needed. And so yeah. I think that was you know. Um, Let's get to the point of like you're at Cal, right? Yeah. How, why New York and the dream and the MTV? So I, I, I had been doing TV, you know, on the side ever since 16, right? So all through college, I was, I did, I hosted a PBS science show called Newton's Apple and I would fly to Minneapolis a few times a year and we'd do these, you know, these shows on science. And, and so I, I, I was, I was working and I kept working, um, not so much with intention, but for me, I was like, I'm going to ride this horse for as long as I'm in this race. And when it's time, someone tells me this race is over, I will pivot to law school or X, you know, whatever that was. (laughs) And so I was just like, and to be really honest, like, you know, it's just survival mentality. Like, who's going to say no to that? Like, it was that or, you know, work in a smoothie bar, which I did as well. You know, like, to me, a job was a job and a paycheck was a paycheck. And I was like, who's paying me the most to do the least amount of work? Okay, that feels good. You know, and I fell in love with it. And I fell in love with sort of understanding storytelling and being in front of the camera, but storytelling is a new word. You guys, like that's not what we called it back then. You know, the reporting side of it. I liked this notion of like, Oh, I feel like I'm in like an eighties movie. You know what I mean? Where like (laughs) nine to five, where like women wore padded, you know, blazers, you know, there's a bit of role playing in that as you're trying to process and figure out like, what is this foreign land that I've landed in? Like, to me, that world, you know, TV was, it, it's a different world. And it was a different world to my parents. It was a different world to my friends. And nobody I knew was even remotely close to that, you know? So, um, so I was auditioning and, and, and all that. And, ju- and, and at that time, uh, when I moved to New York in 1999, uh, Oprah Winfrey was launching the Oxygen Network which is very different than what it looks like today. You know, oxygen was going to be the female revolution, you know, on televised. And I really wanted this job. 
Um, and so I got that job and it was the first time that I thought I can, I think I can do this. It was a daily talk show live for three hours a day. And I did that for a year. And then when that show ended, um, Serena Alchul, uh, was leaving MTV newsroom and a lot of the producers in New York, uh, you know, Viacom is a huge you know, college campus, if you will. Like every producer that works in TV or news that is under the age of, you know, 40 has had some experience working for, for Viacom. And so as producers were leaving my show, they were like, you should try out for this, for this spot. And I was like, great. And so it was pretty straightforward. Like there was no, like you said, like I didn't grow up with MTV. Like that wasn't pay for TV. Like my parents, they, they, I don't even know that that, that possibility, I don't even know if I knew that you could pay for TV. Like, you know what I mean? Like this is like so out of the realm of possibility. So I knew what MTV was because I saw it at my friend Susan Orgera's house, you know, when I would go and I, I would watch her, watch her, you know, soap operas. And then I would watch MTV and I was like, wow, this is crazy. It has nothing to do with my life. And then I'd go back home. And like you said, it was the Korean video from the Korean grocery store, you know, hooked up to the VCR machine. Like, so yeah, that's how I kind of ended up at MTV. And, and that's really my move to New York was, I think, for me, when I uh, found a version of myself professionally, but also personally, it was the first time that I really lived in a city where I didn't see myself reflected as much. And I think uh, while New York is diverse, it's very um, segregated, right? There's clusters. And so when I was living in midtown Manhattan in a corporate apartment, <laughs> there were not a lot of people that looked like me or were my age. So then I was like, oh, I need to find some friends and I need to find some friends that eat the same food that I crave. And I need to find some friends that, you know, I feel safe with because I, I never planned on living in New York. I, I wasn't one of those people that had this dream of, of living there. Fun side question. Favorite Korean restaurant in New York City? Okay, so I hope this is still open and I actually don't know the name of it. And maybe you could look it up or we could look it up now. It is a vegan Korean restaurant hmm. and they, it's like, it's like a type of food that they quote unquote serve in monasteries. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Wait, Korean restaurant. Hmm. I'm going to look it up right now. It's so delicious. I'm not a vegan, by the way. That's how good, I mean, the food is, I mean, but you know, so much of Korean food is Can't vegetarian, vegan. Yeah, sure. vegan Korean restaurant, Koreatown, NYC. I think it's still okay. Yes, it's called Hankawi. Okay. Hankawi. So maybe one scissor. It's beautiful. Cool. You go in and it's very traditional. You sit on the floor and you know it's dimly lit. Uh, side note: My brother was just recently there and he was like, "Did you know that no kids are allowed at that vegan restaurant?" And I was like, "I love it even better." Whoa! <laughs> Great. Cool. I don't know if that's true, but he was there recently, and he for some reason that that came up. He doesn't have kids. I don't know why, but it's a really, yeah, it's been there. It's still there. I'm glad to see it has survived uh, during this time. And it was just like, I ate there a lot. Nice. They, listen, the Korean restaurant is only as good as it's panchan. And I'm sorry, but you know, they, they sometimes, 
these days, you know, they skimp out a little bit. They no, use well, not, I, I have a theory the about best. that. I have a theory what? about that. Because the demographics of the average consumer yes. changed. Change. They don't eat everything in, in the same That's quantity. Right. And so many business restaurateurs yeah. changed the way that they present panchan because I think there was a lot of waste. And yeah. so like when you and I walk in, we eat everything and ask for yeah. more. When other folks go in who are not familiar with the panchan food, um, they only want they probably just probably just have you know end up having to throw away half of it. And so yeah. Um okay. So in expert podcast mode, here's how we segue back into the conversation because your parents own restaurants, you <laughs> uh they had different dreams for you. And I yeah. think it's also important to note like the the idea or the picture of a newscaster in Korea is is very, very specific. And yes. the way that, you know, again, context like Korea in the 80s and 90s was still very, I think we had like five channels, if at that, everything was government licensed and controlled and they didn't censor the content. I guess maybe you believe that depending on where you are, but the people that they let on TV had to fit a certain look. And suffice it to say- it's different. Do you think it's different now? I've seen Korean news. It all looks still the same. But there's different media like the internet, all things internet related for people to break through and get- popular right. or famous without sort mm-hmm. of, you know, having to be on KBS, NBC, yeah. SBS. The way that you presented yourself in your authenticity did not fit that look. And so I'm just curious, did you ever have a conversation? And again, we talked earlier about your mom still saying, it's not too late, go back to law yeah. school. And maybe they're still mm-hmm. telling you that now, who knows? But, you mm-hmm. know, like, what were some of the things that you had to deal with internally mm-hmm. inside, inside of your family and community to mm-hmm. rid yourself of that self-belief or that negative self-talk placed there by some of our most loved family Mm. members to believe that you can be the face of MTV news. You know, I think, okay. um, Let me also further contextualize it. You know, my parents don't speak English like your parents. There's no motivation. They always had their own business and they went from the restaurant to church and back home that that was their trying, you know, triangular route. So obviously they didn't pay for TV. So when every month or so I would make a VHS tape, you know, everyone knew that like, I'd like to have my segments taped because I was sending this VHS tape home. So my parents could watch what I was doing, even though they watch it on mute. They like to see, you know, it's funny when you ask my, I, I'll ask my dad, I'll call and, you know, I would call and say, oh, did you see, you know, we went to, you know, whatever, Cancun for TRL. Did you see I was on the beach? I was in Mexico. And it's like, oh, you were so expressive. Oh, I love the way that, uh, you know, you, you moved your hand, you know what I mean? Like all of their feedback was just a visual, <laughs> not any clue that I was what I was doing. And I remember, you know, my mom would say, you know, I just think I really like what you're doing, but you should probably laugh with your mouth closed. I don't like it when you laugh with your mouth open. I think it doesn't, you know, that's not what, you know, what I would like to see. And so if you could, these were notes. I mean, you take this with a grain of salt. Um, Yeah. And I say this and it sounds like a joke because I get this question a lot and there's so many different answers and I struggled with this, you know, for a really long time is if you have the opportunity to move away from your parents and your community, you do it and you go the farthest 
a way that you can, that you're comfortable with and that you can afford. And you call home once or twice a week, you keep it short and you figure out who you are. It's, that was the only way that I could do it. When I moved to, when I went to Cal, my parents rented out their house to rent an apartment in Alameda so that I could live in an apartment with them in a two bedroom apartment with them and my brother. They rented out their four bedroom house so that I could go to school from home. And when I finally convinced them that I needed to just be on my own, my mother every night would come with leftovers from the restaurant for my dinner. So I think it's really hard. And I think that it, you, the expectation that you can find your own voice in such a stronghold, I think it's really difficult. Most of us need that space, that physical space. So that's what happened. And in New York, I kind of started to figure out things for myself. I started to figure out like, okay, my only version of an Asian news anchor on a national level, obviously, was Connie Chung. That's, that was all mm. of our own, only versions. And when I got to MTV, I started to realize, okay, there's something else here. I haven't seen it. I don't know what it is. You know, and I don't think even the media landscape or the producers knew what it was. But I was starting to figure out there was a different way to be on camera than in the way, like you said, where I had to look a certain way. And I had to follow a certain uh, path to get there. Because being in news, like in news in, in, on one of the networks, because that's what you wanted, ABC, CBS, or NBC, there's cable news, like that's not where I wanted it. That's not the trophy. Being on one of those big major networks is in some ways very clear. It's not easy, but yeah. it's very clear. You put in your time and hopefully you're talented enough or savvy enough to get to that news desk, but there's a very clear route. And I kind of let go of that the longer I stayed at MTV. Mm. I, I think in hindsight, it's really uh, clear the impact that you had from a representation and belief perspective, because you were at MTV when PRL was like must watch TV. And, yeah. you know, it coincided with, or you can take all the credit for it. Um, you know, like it it really was the epicenter of pop culture and everybody yes, knew. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I think for younger folks now, it's really hard to imagine where like something yeah. aired on TV and you had to be there to watch it or you missed Life. it forever. Right. And then you couldn't yeah. you couldn't talk about it with your friends. And so. In, in a different era where even being in touch or engaging with your fans or your heroes was completely a different conversation just 20 years ago. What sort of, did you know then the impact that you were having on younger Asian American women? Did you, did people write letters to you? I don't know how we reached out to our people 20 years ago, but what was, I mean, was there any part of that in your sort of, I am doing something greater than myself? Because I think it's easy for us to say that now, but that's yeah. also a lot of privilege that you and I have because people tell us these things, we're more visible, we're, we're talking on platforms where we don't need anybody's permission, we can say whatever the heck we want. But I wonder, you know, during your tenure, like, did that, you know, or, or did that even appear at all from like, you know, year one through year, you know, by the time you were done with it? No. I mean, it's funny because I did a, I did a podcast and I think the, the host was, I mean, I think she was in her early twenties and I had to 
I had to tell her what a VJ was. I mean, I wasn't a VJ. I was a newscaster. People don't understand there's a difference, but I saw a difference. I had to understand. And so then I started to do it. I was like, well, when they used to play music videos on TV, I was like, wow, I have to roll this back really far. They would have people talk about the music. I mean, it just like complete blank. So then looks and so then to to think about TRL and how impactful that was. And, um, you know, I remember sitting, you know, on the 29th floor where the newsroom and my office was, and I would, you know, be prepping for the show or whatever. And I would start to hear the, what I would call the roller coaster screams. It was like, uh, as the stars were coming in, into the studio and the kids were lined up outside, like not even like you didn't, it wasn't just that you watched it. Like you the dream was to get to New York so that you could stand outside of the TRL studios, look through a window seven floors up into the studio window and have one of your favorite artists wave at you through a window, you guys. This was, <laughs> the people did this. They did this sometimes by the thousands, you know, out there. And so, and then you would do your bit and then, you know, I would do the news and then I would just go back to my life. It's so, um, and, and there's no social media. There's really not even YouTube, you know, like the oh. internet. To me, it was, I remember very clearly when I was like, oh, this is going to change when Twitter launched. Mm. And I said, oh, this is really going to change the way that, that news, I think, I think we're dead. But you know, <laughs> don't quote me on it. But this, I'm not quite sure how live news beats this, this, um, this thing on the phone. So, so there's that. And so I, I, it's only in hindsight, it's only after I've left and I would get glimpses of it because I, I would do these speeches on college campuses that a lot of Asian American student organizations would bring me out for. And I loved it. And I would try to do as many as I could, you know, with the traveling. And so it was there that I kind of got an inkling, but you know, you're sitting in an auditorium of like 20, 20 kids in the middle of Florida, you know, <laughs> like the impact is, is, is not something that you're conscious of or that you can even have access to. And it blows me away to think that like, like a two minute, you know, news read about Britney Spears on TRL could possibly change the trajectory of someone's life. So if you imagine if that tiny blip on the radar could open up this conversation for a generation of, of us, like what is this generation that is coming into their own now? Like what is their version of themselves now? I mean, it's so exciting as much heartache as there is. I mean, I've never been so curious, so excited and, and so profoundly inspired by what's happening around us. Cause like, what are our kids? Like our kids aren't, they don't get to just have that one Korean girl for two minutes, you know, a few times a week, <laughs> you know, like go, you have no excuses. Of course. I, I think, yeah. I mean, you know, um, there are, there's an entire generation of Asian Americans who literally grew up with you. Um, and, and I think, you know, um, humility is good. We all, we all preach humility within, especially in our Korean American community. But you fundamentally changed the way that I think people look at Asian Americans in pop culture, um, and, and, and that's, that's not crazy. that's not a light statement. But I think you were just one. And, and the and, and the thing that I think 
people need to understand is that was not your goal, but that was a byproduct of the success that you were having just by being you. And and I don't think that the media back then, even Viacom MTV as 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 open as they were, didn't think about, you know, what does this mean for like having an Asian face on TV so that we can reach different, you know, like I think it was just a little bit different, but you know, you spend a lot of time talking to the the musical icons of our generation who many of them, maybe most of them, didn't look anything like us. And and I'm curious to get your take on the way that the pop music is now. Like, hell, BTS is going to the White House next week. And that's normal, right? And and I think this also juxtaposition of like Asian talent, like BTS and all the K-pop groups, how do they represent us from our uniquely Asian American lens perspective? But if TRL was still a thing, and if a bunch of teenagers lined up in Times Square and BTS was a guest, like they would have to shut the whole thing down. And like, that's really cool for, especially a Korean, you know, dad of like, dude, the rep- it's so much cooler to be Korean than when we were in school, although we always knew we were cool. But tell me your thoughts on sort of that. And, you know, obviously it wasn't your generation, but um, man, that would have been so cool if that could have happened, right? And like, you know, I, I don't know. I just, you know, imagine this thing where like, Maybe it's even a present day of you, Sujin, where like you're interviewing these guys and be like, yo, this is so meaningful for us to be doing mm-hmm. something together. Yeah. Well, I mean, it did happen, right? But uh, then the context of the audience, right? Because right. it isn't just right in front of the camera that I'm doing something. There has to be an audience there to receive that and then, you know, um, you know, make that bigger, right? And so... I remember your P, Rain, was the biggest <laughs> Korean pop star when that dude. I'm old, man. I'm I'm going old. Yeah, we got we got to teach. Okay, sorry. If you had to Google who P was or Rain is, uh, please, in fact, Google specifically Stephen Colbert Rain, because um, that parody video is probably one of my favorite things on the internet. Um, I mean, Rain. Are you kidding me? P the abs like I was like wait <laughs> what is happening so I remember Rain was making his MTV debut now it wasn't on TRL it was like on like a we did a new segment on it but it was like on a side channel that they were launching called MTV International but it was on the TRL stage so there you go right um already you can tell how the story is playing out. He's not going to make TRL, whereas today BTS would make TRL. So it's 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 a conversation. It's not just me trying to push for representation. It's like there has to be a system that recognizes it and an audience that really wants it. So Rain came and his English, I think is still not that great. It was terrible then. And so I um, tried to do as much. I mean, I understand Korean way better than I can speak it. And so... I tried to do as much of the interview in Korean. Wait, funny side story. So P was coming. And so I called my mom in Oakland at the <laughs> restaurant. And I was like, mom, you need to help me translate. I, I have time for five questions. I can do this in Korean. So get this, Jerry. So I would ask her. I was like, okay, I need for you to tell me how to ask this, you know, in Korean. She's like, okay, okay, I got it. Oh my God, this is so huge. This is, this is peace coming. I'm like, yes. Okay. So whatever the question was, you know, like how, you know, when you were young, did you ever think that you would be the biggest, you know, pop star in Korea? And she 
answer the question like Pete. <laughs> she was like, because she knew everything about him. We all knew everything about it. I was like, Mom, not to answer. I'm not asking you the question. That's funny. Anyway, that was really funny. She was like, wait, what? What's happening? I was like, I need you to translate my interview. So I remember that moment like tearing up because it wasn't just him. It was everyone, he came with a huge entourage and everybody was Korean. So like I was in the TRL studio that I was always in, only it was only filled with Korean people. And so it was just like a real weird, profound shift. And there were a lot of, you know, Koreans, but also mostly Korean Americans. And so it was like, we were all like, holy shit, like, we gotta make this happen let's do this you know um the rest is history it was too early i think rain was before his time before our time before we were ready um but anyway so so that i tell that story because you know that's it just bts is bts because of the world shifting of our audience shifting it's not just because um you know there's there's one factor making BTS BTS. I, I, I would say, I think because, I mean, the world stage is different, but I think at the time I can only imagine, but I've also had some uh, fun life experience of, of having K-pop hosting K-pop people of yester generations for stuff here, completely different chapter of my life, but the honor, <laughs> oh my God, I want to know the yeah. honor of yeah. being invited oh, to yeah. be on MTV or yeah. to sing at, Madison Square Garden or at the Hollywood Bowl places that are on a pedestal of not just American, but global peaks and summits of what this means for them. And I bet you the fact that then they got to see you who was the host and the representation of what they had always thought of this as American institution. I mean, they were probably crying on the way back home. They just couldn't do it in front of their bosses, right? Like it's, it's so impactful. And I, have to believe that all those little micro moments of community and just representation, even in a different world, all has led to the things that we get to do now. And the things that, I mean, heck your kids and my kids are just going to take for granted of seeing like just Koreans everywhere. Right. But you know, a lot of people, including you fundamentally did the work. Um, Again, I think it's also, you know, profound that it wasn't, we get to do intentionally Asian American building things now and have a space to do it and make it profitable and get the support both financially and community wise. But back then there wasn't right. Like, and I think it's really important to understand that too, because you know, what a privilege that we get to do now what we do, right. Um, You just wrote a book, you and a whole bunch of your best Asian American friends (laughs) with MTV, (laughs) with our friend Michelle and her wonderful people at Cape uh, just wrote a book called my life growing up in Mm -hmm. Asian America. Um, Mm -hmm. why was it important for you to do this book and to invite your friends to tell their own story instead of you telling it for them? Well, I'm never going to write a book. So let's just put that out there. (laughs) Writing the introduction for this was was painful enough. Um, So this is the first book to come out of MTV Books, which is a new um, department or an entity to come out of Viacom. And I think I wrote it because of Cape. I knew if Cape was involved, that there was going to be integrity. And I wrote it because of Christian Trimmer, who is the editor there, AAPI, and 
who I had an initial conversation with. And I was very clear from that conversation that this was going to be something that wasn't going to be slapped together. It wasn't going to be sanitized. And it wasn't going to be immigrant tragedy porn, Mm. which I think a lot of um, our stories sometimes uh, can fall into. So I knew I was in good hands. And I I wrote the introduction before I really read any of the essays coming in. And as you've, you know, maybe peeked into it, you, I, I can't, I can't really overstate the importance of having, you know, let's say these 30 voices together collectively all in one place to give you just a, a, a little, a little taste of the diaspora of, you know, of our community. Um, and, and I think that each story is so different than the one before which I found very surprising. I thought that I would start to feel like I was reading the same story over and over again. And in some ways that's comforting because you see yourself in it and you're like, yes, you know, look at, there's so many of us, but this one, I I did not expect to see that there were going to be such a variety of experiences. So I, you know, it was a no brainer for me. And, you know, obviously I have a long history with MTV. I'm doing the voice for Cribs again. (laughs) I don't know if you know that it's really weird. to be, to be in that space again. So, um, time is circular and I just felt like I've done so much of my growing up with MTV. There's been so much, uh, there's that it has affected my life in such a profound way that it felt full circle Mm. to come there to tell this version of my story. And they let me tell the good, bad, and the ugly. It's not a sanitized version of my experience there or my experience um, working in media. And it was never edited or, you know, it was a complete open, open book process. First of all, thank you for doing that because I, I think a piece of the story that you didn't mention deliberately, but I think it's it's worth noting is you use your privilege to open doors for other people to share their story, right? You had the relationship, you have... You're, you're a legend and a veteran with the organization. So when you say we should do this, it carries a lot more meaning. And for you to be able to collect these 30 people whose experiences are so different yet so resonant, um, I think we often think about those with privilege and those with access being the facilitator in the opportunities that happen. I, I think it's critically important. And, and, and two, when you said these stories just it's never the same, but it's so different. I mean, we've done over 150 episodes here and there comes a point where it's like, hey, like, when do you run out? Like, aren't are all these immigrant refugee adoptee, you know, stories the same? And I'm like, no, like I have the privilege of asking virtually, like, tell me about yourself in these variety of different ways with so many people. And and, and we are also then reminded of so many of the blind spots and the assumptions that we have yeah. of our own community, right? Like, yeah, I mean, having our parents voluntarily immigrated here as Korean Americans is a damn privilege, right? Yeah. Other people didn't have that. And so yeah. for, for us to be humbled in the way that we think about how we tell our unique stories and I think is is such such an honor. Um, yeah, and so I agree. my generation know you as the MTV person, perhaps this generation knows you as the uh, one of the two amazing co-hosts of Add to Cart, where you mm. are now sort of owning your own platform, your own megaphone, if you will, to talk yeah. to people uh, with your host and uh, with your co-host and, and to share the stories that perhaps you've wanted to tell. 
you started this in the midst of the pandemic as many of us have either started or really doubled down on the storytelling. Tell us about the, the, the journey that's been at to cart for you. And we connected because an amazing publication whose name I forget, I think it was Good Housekeeping, put us on the mutual yeah. list of Asian American podcasts you got to listen to. Yeah. And so what a cool yeah. list to belong to. But tell, tell us about that journey and, and how it's been for you to talk unfiltered in a way and for you to own your own voice uh, without the filter of a conglomerate media entity. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you would think that I uh, would hold it with more reverence, but now that I've been unleashed, boy, <laughs> people are really quite surprised at how weird I am, at how much of a recluse I am, how just a cranky old crotchety person. I have always been. It's, this is not a new phase in my life. I was born this way. So, um, yeah, you know, I Kulat Velisak, who is my co-host, and she's a comedian, and she's been in the industry for a really long time in the in the comedy side, and then I've been on the news side, and she had done a podcast, and she was like, you know, let's. I think we should do a podcast. And so what I didn't want to do was do a podcast about anything serious. I was like, I don't want to do the news. I don't want to talk about my Asian identity. I don't want to do this. I just want to talk about shopping. I'm going to talk about shopping. I'm going to buy, I want to talk about the things I buy. I want to know, you know, what the best serum is. This is foolhardedly what I thought we were going to do. And this is before COVID. Mm. It was February, the February before COVID. And she was like, great, we'll make it light, we'll make it funny. She's comedy, you know, she's of the comedy world. And I was like, fine, you make it funny, I will shop. So cut to, as, as we're recording, the world is changing, you know, drastically you know, the past three years. We're stuck in our homes. I moved, didn't know I was moving. I thought I was renting an Airbnb outside of LA for a few weeks and then turned out to be, this is where I live now. Political unrest, racial unrest, black lives, the violence that continues to be broadcasted and escalated in our AAPI community. So when I sit down in front of a microphone, I talking about serums, while I do love to talk about that, it's not where I'm at. You know, if I haven't you know, I, I think for, the, you know, we've been doing this for just about a little over two years. I think for the first year of it, I just, I cried a lot every week. And it was a lot of producers and Ku and I just being like, I don't know if I can record today. Like I haven't been out of bed in 10 days. Like I, I don't know what I can say other than that I'm heartbroken and I'm lost. So the podcast is a real reflection of our lives. You know, I always knew that it was like a good kind of, in our business, we call it like a, a good hook to talk, talk about, okay, let's, let's, I'm going to tell you what I bought, but I'm going to, that thing is going to have a story attached to it. You know, I'm going to tell you about this hiking sock that I bought, but I don't hike. I use it when I go to sleep, you know, like there's a story there and then we uncover parts of each other. So I think that it's it's a podcast about the things we buy, but that's not where the heart is. It's a podcast about the things we buy and what they say about who we are. Mm -hmm. And that part of it has been 
it's been hard and liberating and I've grown up so much in it as we all have watching this. I've hesitated a lot. There's a lot of self-doubt. Um, and I would not have been able to write the version of the introduction in this book had the last three years not happened. I would have wrote a different version. I know that version. I've told that version. It'll be a little more sanitized. It'll be a little more inspirational. It'll be a bit more aspirational. Um, but it wouldn't have been the version that I wrote when I wrote it last summer, which was from heartbreak, from just deep, profound realizations about my experiences, but also how I have been so complicit in the experience of other people who have, you know, been facing violence and prejudice and racism for since the beginning of time, you know, so all of that stuff. And so I think in some ways, this book uh, is a byproduct of the last two and a half years, it would have been a different book, mm. had it been published before. I think you mentioned something that I think is so many of us, I, I feel all the time that um, like, I don't want to talk about some of this stuff. Yeah, I, I, I wish I could put my head in the sand and talk about excellence and leadership and personal branding and let's all make a ton of money together and way to go, you know, whatever yeah. we can't like, we physically can't pretend to yeah. not care because even when it's others, it hurts. But if it's your people and you see people that could be your mom, your grandma, even you and your kids now, like, how do you, how do we, are we supposed to chase our dreams? If we want to do something fun and uplifting and yet, we have to talk about the things because not because it sounds callous, but because we physically cannot go through a day or conversation without talking about the context of being us. And through that lens, we see the whole damn world and how effed up it is. And I, I am so glad that you share that because there are so many people that are listening and, and you and I have so much significant privilege to because we've, done this we we're comfortable in front of a mic we know a ton of people we have community that always encourages us but there are people that still have to pretend to not care because it impacts their bank account it impacts their personal safety because they live in areas in america and around the world they can't be proudly asian and outwardly so and so if you are one of these people that are listening to us i i i'm sorry that you're having to go through that and if there's any sort of encouragement that we can give there are so many people in the world and especially here in our community that will take you in and to encourage you to be you and to let you be you. I, I, I cannot imagine how challenging it is because I cannot go a day. I can't do a podcast interview or a speaking engagement or even a conversation with somebody without talking about me, not me, but like me as an Asian American and how that identity shapes everything. And that everybody, whether you're Asian, black, white, doesn't matter. We all have a part so that, you know, we don't have to talk like, my goal in all this one is to work myself out of a job. I don't want this to be a thing, right? I don't want, right? Like, and, and I, maybe you feel the same way too, but like, I want my kids to grow up and been like, Hey, Appa, like, why was it such a big deal that you had an Asian American <laughs> podcast? Right? Like, why does Sujinimo have to write a whole damn book about our stories? This is just normal. Why? Like, why did you like make it such a big deal that like, you know, Sujinimo was on MTV for all that time. Like, don't we just see us on TV all the time? That's my dream. I want them to make fun of me because I made this a big deal. But the only way that happens is if we do make it a big deal now, 
right? And, and, and it starts with childhood education. It starts with children's books. It starts with talking about these things with our kids. And there is a really big sentiment amongst at least my network of folks that this is exhausting and none of us want to do this, but we have to. And so um, I, I just want to say thank you because your journey of being in everybody's homes and being a household name. And as I kicked off the show with my wife, is like, you're interviewing who? <laughs> and and she's at work today, but if she wasn't, you know, she'd be sitting in the interview with us. And um, the, and what I am most proud of, or I don't, maybe I can't say I'm proud of, but um, fumbling over my words here, the thing that I am most happy about, Sujin, is that hmm. you are now taking all that makes you awesome and then saying, here, use my platform, use my privilege, step on this stage with me so that we can all share our stories a little bit louder yeah. and in a way that is uniquely us, right? Because yeah. our kids' definition of their Korean American identity is going to be so different than you and mine, yours yeah. and mine, and it's just one generation. And so what can we do? Um, and right. in, in two generations from our parents to them, I mean, how much privilege and how much difference that we, we can provide for them. And um, it's it's frightening um, to to almost raise kids in this environment. I mean, I just got an email from my kids' preschool saying we're going to do an evaluation of our safety precaution measures at our facilities. Mm -hmm. Like that email should never be sent. And so, mm -hmm. you know, in in such a odd, frightening, scary time, we have to do this work. And I am so glad that we are uh, not only friends but colleagues in this effort yeah. to normalize Asian American storytelling. And I cannot tell you how big of a deal it is, especially if you're young, to see our book being published yeah. by an icon that was the icon of our generation. Mm. And that is super cool. And I hope if you are listening that you find it within yourself. And if you can't find the courage within yourself, think about Sujin's kids, my kids, all of our next kids, because they need to hear your story. And so yeah. um, it's it's been a tough week, tough month, tough two years and it's easy to give up, but I, I thank you for not giving up. I thank you for staying loud and all your uniqueness and <laughs> all your authentic self. And that I am happy that you did not listen to all the naysayers or your parents <laughs> or your mom and went back to law school and all these things, because <laughs> that's a boring story. And, and this is a story worth sharing. And so thank you. And as, as we wrap our signature question is the letter, which is, in the form of a letter, we'd love for you to share something with our Asian American community to anything really inspire, motivate, get angry about, get passionate about, or just something that you might want to say to your kids or a younger version of you. And so, Sujin Pak, please help us finish out the episode by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. So, dear Asian Americans, firstly, I want to say that this moment in time that for all those that have showed up when it mattered the most, I think everyone thanks you. But I also think that if you feel scared and if there are moments in your day when you see injustice, when you yourself are being diminished for who you are and your voice quivers and you can't speak up and your heart is beating a mile a minute like mine is in this moment, when you can't get out of bed because you're too distraught and scared, that in those moments, that in that awareness that you are worthy, 
that you deserve better, that you are courageous. And I think that I spent my whole life thinking that I was a coward because I always felt scared. I always felt like I couldn't speak up. And now I look back on it and I realize that the awareness of why I felt so incomplete, why I felt so angry was the seed of courage that today, that's what I treasure, that's what I water, that's what I grow. And so to all those that are courageous, that may not feel like they're courageous, I see you. That means a lot coming from somebody who I will humbly say was instrumental in the way that so many of us saw ourselves, the way that we equated a Korean girl to being American cool in an era where we were assumed to assimilate if we wanted to be cool. And and, and you stood out and then you are now even doing more work to make sure that we can all share our stories. And so thank you. This has been um this didn't feel like an interview. It just felt like us talking. Yeah. Um, I know, long overdue. Yeah, and, and you know, and what you know, joy and what benefit, how lucky are we to have friends like each other so that we can encourage each other because I, I think a lot of this new stuff, my newfound perspective on life became super clear when I became a dad. And literally, yeah. I was like, what the hell am I doing for my kids? Because making money is not the goal, right? There's... So many ways to do meaningful work like this and provide for your kids. I, I hope people are taking time to reflect on how not only they're spending money to help the community, but how they're making money and, and, and the things that they can do. And so you are one of the loudest people in our community. And, and so thank you for getting loud and, and staying louder. And um, I, I wish you the best. I wish you health. I wish your children and your family safety, at, you know, in all ways. And um, we're still in the middle of COVID and not so many socialization things, but uh, looking forward to meeting you in real life and hanging out. And um, I know I, I will say I am super, super excited about cribs. Uh, <laughs> so most most folks know, and I'll end with this silly story. Uh, yeah. So when we went to the White House last week, like yeah. we were walking in the White House, and we're like, "Oh my God, we're walking in the White House! What's going on?" And I had my phone out, and I was video recording, and the only thing that I could like think to say was. Welcome to MTV Creds White House Edition. And I was just like walking around with my phone camera. And I just, you know, it was fundamental to how we grew up. And it's, you know, people just know. And so, again, I, I think it just normalizes what it means to be us, Korean and American, Asian and American. Yeah. And having you be the voice of that show, which I I mean, it, it's so fun. And so I'm sorry if you're under the age of 25 and you had no idea what the heck Sudan and Jerry talked about for the last hour. It'll be in a history book one there's day. There's Google. There's Google. <laughs> yeah. Look it up. Look it up. And also look up that B video because that was pretty funny. Um, but thank you. This has meant so much for me. Really, really appreciate you jumping on and to the entire team behind the scenes that made this happen. Um, yes. Thank you so much and please be safe. Thank you. Big thanks to Sujin for uh, sharing her story with us. Uh, she has a book out as we talked about in the episode and it is called My Life Growing Up in Asian America. It's produced or is published by uh, Simon Schuster in, in uh, partnership with CAPE Coalition for Asian Pacifics in Entertainment. Our, our friend Michelle Sujihara over there, really awesome uh, community leader. It's a, a collection of a awesome Asian American story. So I encourage you to go read it. I encourage you to go buy it. Uh, buy it from a locally owned Asian American bookstore if you can. And if you must, buy it from one of the big guys. But uh, 
read our books, share our books, and write our books. And uh, so I encourage you to do that. It's been a pleasure to share this time with you. It is episode 157 here at the Asian Americans, uh, and we are now going on almost 28 months, two years and four months on this show together. As you celebrate uh, America this weekend, as you think about what America could be, what it should be, and what we want to make it to be, I wish you nothing but safety and health foremost, uh, and happiness and rest as well. If you would like to contact us and learn more about the show, uh, theersandamericans.com is where you can find us on the internet, at theersandamericans on Instagram. Me personally, I am at jerryj1 on IG, jerrywan.com on the internet, and you can just search Jerry Wan, that's W-O-N, on LinkedIn, and you can find me there. Yeah, got some uh, trips planned for speaking gigs in July and August, going back to D.C. a couple of times to speak. Uh, just got invited to speak at an event in Seattle in October, in Chicago, upcoming in the middle of July. I feel so honored and so blessed to be able to do what I do and to uh, meet so many of you um, as I travel to speak at different events. And so thanks again so much for letting me do this work and for allowing me to live out my dream job that I didn't even know was possible in sharing Asian American stories with you all. I am Jerry Wan, your host of the Asian Americans, and I wish you health, happiness, and rest. See you soon.